how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? All things for what? A new boat, a new car, more money. All things related to the glorification, the salvation of his people. He has given all that we need for that salvation. Oh, once saved, always saved. Amen. But was the person saved? This doctrine does not teach that everyone who professes to be Christian will be eternally saved. Many, many will say, Lord, Lord, and he's going to say, I never knew you. Destruction is taking place. Exile. Death. Pain. Suffering. Darkness. Where is the Davidic king that will come to deliver us? The suffering that we go through is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison. And the Lord used suffering, brothers and sisters, the Lord used suffering as the means for perseverance. And because God is faithful in preserving His promises and His people, Jeremiah is saying, I will persevere. Every morning I have a reason to wake up and keep pressing on. Let's read Psalm 23. So I want to invite you to stand if you can. Psalm 23, the well-known psalm. says, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You may be seated. Lord, we... We pray, pray the, the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. Please help me. Help me to be faithful. Help this congregation to be faithful. We need you, Lord. Speak to us. Lord, as the, the crowd that came to see Jesus, they, they told the disciples, we want to see Jesus. So please show us Jesus through the preaching of your word, Lord. For the glory of your name. Amen. Amen. Some of you who like running know that there is a massive difference between running a marathon and running a 100-meter race, right? There's a massive difference. There's a massive difference even in the physical aspect of the runners, so, for example, if you look at the, the, the physical aspect of a 100-meter race guy, you're going to see that he's pretty strong. So, for example, you look at a picture of Usain Bolt, right? Or Tyson Gay, and you're going to see massive legs. But now you look at 
the marathon runner. And they're going to see that those legs are what? Pretty small. It's said that the heart rate of a sprinter is between 80 to 90 percent, while the marathon runner is 60 to 70 percent. And we are much more entertained by watching the 100-meter race, right, <laughs> than the marathon. There is the, as you think about the 100-meter race, there is the adrenaline, the speed, the power. It's fun. The marathon is a long, long run. And the Christian life is much better pictured by the marathon than by the 100-meter race. The marathon runner is trained for endurance, keeping their pace and making sure that they possess the energy and power to finish the race well. And there is something majestic about those who persevere and, and, and finish the race. Not only in the, the marathon, but you think about even stories that we treasure. Think about the military and that soldier who persevered in the battlefield. So some of you have seen Hexaw Ridge, Desmond Doss, and he remains in the battlefield, persevering under trial. There's something beautiful about those who persevere. You think about the Olympic Games, one of the most majestic scenes is when the marathon runner gets back to the stadium for his last lap. After they left the stadium to run and they come back, and that's one of the most glorious pictures that we have when the lonely marathon runner re-enters the Olympic Stadium for the final lap. As the fatigue figure presses to finish the line, the crowd rises to its feet to cheer him, straining every muscle in his body. The runner pushes through the tape. And before the watching eyes of the world, he's awarded the coveted gold medal. And the Christian life is very similar to that of a marathon race. The author of Hebrews tells us, he says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witness, referring to the heroes of the Old Testament who ran the race and persevered to the end, he says, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with what? Perseverance. Perseverance, the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he, and the same word for persevere, endured the cross, despising the shame, and seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who what? Persevere under such hostility from sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary or fainted heart. And every Christian is registered to the marathon. There is no way to say, I'm not going to run. Once you, you come to Christ, once Christ drags you to himself, you are registered to this marathon. There is no escape. And the beautiful thing is that we are not running against each other. We are running with each other. Amen? We run with, with each other. That's why it's the perseverance of the saints. We are together on this. It's a serious race. A race that involves testing, 
strength, character, life and death are set before us. And we must keep going. There is no way we cannot say, all right, I'm going to give up here. We keep going. I like how John Piper says he calls Christians to be, he tells that there are two ways of living our lives. One is the coronary from the coronary artery. So there is the coronary Christian and there is the adrenal Christian. And he talks about the coronary artery is that the heart constantly, constantly, constantly. You even forget that the heart's there pumping. The adrenal from adrenaline is just that very short moment. I like what Piper says. He says, coronary Christians are like the heart in the cause that they serve. Adrenal Christians are like adrenaline, a spurt of energy and then fatigue. And we are called to be the one who perseveres, keeps going. And we run this race in Christ, looking to Christ, empowered by the Spirit of Christ, for the glory of Christ. Amen? And that's why we are looking at this wonderful doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. As we continue our journey here, we, we, we are looking at what makes us reform. And in one aspect of the Reformation was to bring these marvelous doctrines that God saves sinners. The Reformation was that movement where the Word of God was brought back to the pulpit and proclaimed. And as the Word is being proclaimed, people are understanding that we cannot save ourselves. There is no penance. There is no merit that we can achieve on our own. The Lord must save us. So we have seen already the first one, the total depravity. Man, because of sin, is completely incapable, unable to save himself. There is nothing good in us to save ourselves. Therefore, we need a God who is going to act for us and in us. And He acts for us by choosing some. And those whom He chose, you have the Father choosing, the Son coming to redeem those. And the Spirit now regenerating those whom was were chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son. And as we come to this final point here, the P, we have the Trinity working in us for the glory of His name. So these five points stand together. They either stand or fall together. There is no way to be a, a four-pointer, a two-pointer, a three-pointer. The five points are together. And we saw last Lord's Day how dangerous it is when you just want the last one. I just want the perseverance of the saints. And then you have a very dangerous and messed up theology. So here's the outline of this morning. We're going to continue our journey. We look last Lord's Day at the perseverance of the saints defined. And today we're going to start our journey in verifying this doctrine. Is it true? Is it in the Bible? So just to review, I think it's important, we saw that there's so much confusion about this doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. And the first thing was to remove the, all those confusing ideas, but being very clear that this doctrine does not teach that everyone who professes to be Christian will be eternally saved. There is a massive difference between professing and what? Possessing. Amen? Many, many will say, Lord, Lord, and He's going to say, I never knew you. 
Many will profess, many profess. There is a massive difference between professing and being possessed by Jesus and possessing Him by faith. The second aspect that we need to, it must be clear, is that perseverance of the saints does not teach that no matter how you live, you will be saved. That's the false understanding of taking the P out of the context and just embracing the perseverance and saying, Oh, once saved, always saved. Amen. But was the person saved? That's the perseverance of the saints. So we can define this doctrine as the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. It states that all those who are truly born again will be kept by God's power and will persevere as Christians until the end of their lives. And that only those who persevere until the end have been truly born again. The perseverance, the endurance of the saints. The word perseverance means you come under trial and you keep moving, you keep going. And then you have the saints. Who are the saints? All those who are in Christ Jesus. He is the Holy One. And all those who are in Him are holy. So brothers and sisters, this doctrine does not apply to those who do not live a life that reflects that the Holy Spirit is in them. I mentioned that last Lord's Day, and that's true. So many people, so many people, Forget that you got to show fruit of salvation. We start calling people Christians and we start saying that they are in heaven when they never showed fruit or evidence of salvation. Suddenly you're applying this doctrine to people who are not saints. Shame on us for doing that. Is, is that why we, we fear the doctrine of hell? Are we embarrassed of the doctrine of hell? As if it's something that we should be embarrassed of? That's the perseverance of the saints. Those who are in Christ. Those who are possessed by the Holy Spirit. And those who are possessed by the Holy Spirit will show a life of sanctification. You cannot be indwelled by the Holy Spirit and not show a life of holiness. And I remind you, the saints is in the plural. Because it's the community. We walk together. We saw also other names, the preservation of the saints that emphasize God's work in preserving us or eternal security, implying that God gives us eternal life. It's not temporary life. And all these different terms must be placed together. I know that some people really like the preservation, some really like the uh, eternal security, but we need all of them. God preserves us by empowering us to persevere until the end. Uh, we also saw that this doctrine is vital from the doctrine of union with Christ. We can only persevere because we are united to Him who persevere to the end. So we persevere in Christ. We persevere like Christ. Christ Jesus persevered to the end and we imitate our Lord and head. And the Spirit of Christ empowers us to persevere. And Christ perseveres in His intercession towards us. So it's impossible to... Take this doctrine out of the doctrine of the union of Christ, with Christ. And that's, that's why we started looking at all the doctrines in the Bible, they're held together. All the doc doctrines in the Bible, somehow they're interconnected. 
So, I hope it's clear what it is and what is not. Spent a long time last Lord's Day studying that. So, what I want to do now is to move to the verification of this doctrine. Let's verify if the Bible teaches that. Amen? I would say that the story of the Bible is a glorious drama of a God who is faithful to preserve His seed and empower His people to persevere to the end. The drum of the Bible can be summarized in the drum of Christ. Think about that. The drum of the Bible is the drum of Jesus Christ. And what is the story of Christ? The one who persevered to the end, being faithful to the point of death, and conquering through his painful endurance. James says, look at what James says. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast, persevering under trial. For when he has to the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Brothers and sisters, that's the story of Christ. Amen. Jesus Christ. The better Adam. Christ's triumph and exaltation came through his perseverance to the end, through much tribulation. And as we think about the perseverance of the saints in the Old Testament... You can picture the, the whole Old Testament is one marvelous story of God preserving the seed that He promised in Genesis 3. So we have God's preservation of His people. And as He's preserving His people, He's empowering His people to persevere. That's why you have the, in the Old Covenant, you have the doctrine of the remnant. The remnant are those who persevere until the end, being faithful to God. Think about the Hall of Fame in Hebrews 11. In Hebrews 11, you have the Hall of Fame, all the heroes of the faith. And there, as you read, as you read Hebrews 11, you see a God who preserves and a people who persevere. Even though they're full of flaws, they're still persevering to the end. Look at what Paul says about the Old Testament. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction... That through uh, perseverance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So you think the Old Testament is not only a story about perseverance, but it's for our perseverance also. That's one of the, the ways that God empowers us to keep journeying. And as we think about the Old Testament and the doctrine of the perseverance, the doctrine of the preservation... There's one key word in the Old Testament that's vital to understand this doctrine. And that's the Hebrew word hesed. Hesed, or steadfast love, loving kindness, mercy. That's how it's differently translated. Hesed speaks of God's loyal and faithful covenantal love towards His people. We can define this as the steadfast persevering and all-preserving covenantal love of God. It's His has said that preserves His people and causes His people to persevere. So, for example, in the book of Lamentations, that's the saddest book in the Old Testament. Look at the name of the book. The book of Lamentations. Right? Not a very happy title. In the heart of the book, as you are walking through this book, in the heart of the book, Hebrew, the Hebrew poetry, all well structured, in the heart of the book, Jeremiah says, 
the chesed, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. That's why we are not consumed. That's why we are not destroyed. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. God will preserve. And because God is faithful in preserving his promises and his people, Jeremiah is saying, I will persevere. Every morning I have a reason to wake up and keep pressing on under trial. In Exodus 15, the greatest event in the Old Testament, the, the Exodus, right after they crossed the Red Sea, we read uh, they're singing to the Lord at the first hymn that we have in the Bible. and says, you have led in your what? Hesed, in your steadfast love, the people whom you have redeemed. Psalm 94 says, who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against evildoers? If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have lived in the land of silence. When I thought my foot slips, your hesed, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. So as you think about the Old Testament, this marvelous doctrine of the preservation and the perseverance of the saints... This key word, hesed, is fundamental to understand this doctrine. The hesed of our God keeps our feet stable to fight a good fight and run the race. And as God is preserving His people through, through His hesed, that hesed is empowering His people to persevere. So, look at the psalmist says, Psalm 5-7. But I... Because of the abundance of your what? Chesed, your steadfast love. I will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. So he will persevere in going to the house of the Lord, worship him because of the chesed of the Lord. The psalmist also says, For your hesed, your steadfast love is before my eyes. And because the hesed is before his eyes, I walk in your faithfulness. Or, in your steadfast love, in your hesed, give me life. In your hesed, give me life. Why? That I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. So the saints persevere because of the hesed, the preservation of God. And as we move to the book of Genesis, of course, there is Genesis 3 where God promises that seed that will come. And from there on, he's just preserving the line of that seed. But in Genesis 5, we see that line being manifested through a very wonderful character, Enoch. And in Genesis 5.24... We hear that Enoch walked with God, meaning he was faithful to God. He persevered under trial. Imagine the situation, the population around him, wicked people, and still he walks with God, fearing God. Enoch walked with God, and he was not. Why? Because God took him. The perseverance and the preservation. God took Enoch home, preserving his life. And that's a type of all Christians. 
Think about Noah, another one coming from his line. Noah is also, he said that he walked with God. Genesis 6, 9. And in Genesis 7, 16, we read, And those that entered the ark, male and female of all flesh, went in as God commanded him, perseverance of the saints here. And the Lord what? And the Lord what? Shut him in. The covenantal Lord closed the entrance into the ark, sealing it as a sign of protection until the end of the flood. David Matthews in his commentary, uh, Kenneth Matthews, sorry, he says, Closing the ark's door signals the divine protection that kept out the raging seas. God is protecting, preserving his people. As Noah is persevering under trial. And by shutting that door, the Lord is saying, nothing will take you out of this ark. Very similar to Moses. In his little ark that his mom made. God is preserving him. God is protecting him. We could think about Abraham. We don't have time to go through the life of Abraham. But how God... Do you see how it's all flowing from unconditional election? All those things that we saw earlier now coming to fruition in the perseverance and the preservation of the saints. As we come to the book of Exodus, we have the Passover and we have the crossing of the sea. And that event, that, that, that occasion becomes a major point in the life of Israel, and is used by later prophets as they are thinking about the new Exodus, they go back to the first Exodus to talk about how it's going to be glorious. And we read in Exodus, as we saw earlier, in Exodus 15, it says, You have led in your hesed, in your steadfast love, the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Wait a second. Have they arrived at the, at the place yet? No, not yet. But it's certain that God's people will get there. And the Lord is pictured as a shepherd here, leading, guiding his people. Yahweh is the true shepherd. He leads, guides, plants, and brings his people into their destiny by preserving, protecting, and persevering, loving towards them. This picture is expanded by Isaiah as we move to the prophets. And Isaiah 43, as Isaiah is picturing the new exodus and God's faithfulness towards his people. He says, but now, Isaiah 40, 43, he says, but now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. And look at that. The perseverance and the preservation. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. Fear not for what? I am with you. The covenantal presence of God preserving. That's why we sing the wonderful hymn, How Firm a Foundation. Fear not, I'm with thee. O be not dismayed, for I am thy God, and I will still give you a aid. I will strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. 
the creator, redeemer, and caller of Israel will be with his people until the end. How about Jeremiah? Jeremiah speaks about the new covenant. In Jeremiah 32, he has this beautiful promise of all the members of the new covenant. In contrast with the old covenant, there are just some. Now in the new covenant, all the members will be marked by this. The Lord says, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And look at that. I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. All the new members, all the members of the new covenant, God places a new heart in them that they will fear God and do what? Persevere until the end. As we move to the writings, following the Hebrew structure of the Old Testament, as we move to the writings, we come to the book of Job. And the book of Job is a clear picture of what, how the saints persevere under trial. We know that God protects his people, Psalm 91. Satan knows it. So Satan tells the Lord, have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? Meaning this sea. That's why Job does what he does. And of course, this text can be abused. But it's clear that there is indeed a spiritual hedge around those who are in Christ Jesus. The hedge is not physical or material as Job and Christ demonstrate us. But it's an eternal one. And the hedge that the saints have is further revealed by Jesus to be his own hand and the hand of the Father protecting his people. It does not mean that we will never be attacked, persecuted, or afflicted, but that we are eternally secure in God's hand. That's, this hedge is sang by the psalmist, but you, O Lord... But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. Psalm 3.3 or Psalm 34.7. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. It's a promise of protection for God's people. And we know clearly that's not simply physical protection. But that's spiritual protection. Those who belong to him are his. So James, the book of James, used Job as a picture of perseverance of the saints one who perseveres under trial think about the prophet daniel daniel and his friends we see a god who preserves and a people who persevere as we move to the book of lamentations as we saw earlier sad they are in captivity destruction is taking place exile death Pain, suffering, darkness. Where is the Davidic king that will come to deliver us? And right in the heart of that book, Jeremiah says, The steadfast, the hesed, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Because of the steadfast love of the Lord, we are not cut off. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And what, you're, what Jeremiah is saying here, I know, I know that the Davidic king will come to rescue us. His has said, we'll remain no matter what. 
If you are with your Bibles open, please open Psalm 16. Psalm 16. We don't have time to go through this psalm, but here, Psalm 16, we also see this beautiful picture of the perseverance of the saints and the preservation of God's people by His mighty hand. See how He perseveres in verses 1 through 3. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. And then as you move to verses 8 through 11, that's the glorious declaration that the Lord will preserve His people even when they go through Sheol, even when they go through the grave. God will preserve His people. And this psalm is applied to Jesus. How God preserves the anointed one. And now all those who are in Christ Jesus, they will be preserved. And the resurrection is one of the means that God preserves His people. We don't have time to walk through that. I want to walk through Psalm 23 briefly. So turn with me to Psalm 23. And in Psalm 23, we have the story of the Bible in a nutshell. God rescues His people, leads them to His dwelling place, passing through many dangerous toils and snares, until they arrive there safely to worship Him forever. So the psalmist says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, His covenantal presence. No matter where I am, you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. God will not abandon His people. Even in the valley of the shadow of death, He is with them, guiding them. And He has a rod and a staff. The rod and staff were His instruments of discipline, rescue, protection, pulling the sheep from departing, the rod to smash the head of a serpent that might come to attack His sheep. And He says, look at how beautiful it is. Surely, Goodness and what? Has said. Surely goodness and your steadfast love shall follow me. That's a weak translation. Literally shall persecute me. Shall chasten after me. The same word is used for troops coming and pursuing someone. And what David is telling us is that God's goodness and he, His has said will pursue His people until the end. And the result is, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord for how long? Some days? Forever. For all the days of my life. James Hamilton, he says, Yahweh, the good shepherd who led his people out of Egypt and through the wilderness to the land of promise, also protected David. Yahweh, the good shepherd, then became incarnate. And Jesus, the good shepherd, has led his people out of his slavery to sin by accomplishing the new and greater exodus. Jesus shepherded us through the wilderness to the new and greater land of promise, the new heavens and the new earth. 
And Jesus beautifully, as you come to John chapter 10, he used, he used Psalm 23, he used Ezekiel 34, the passage in Zechariah, to show that his sheep are protected. The good shepherd will keep his sheep. And then he tells us, you're going to see that next Lord's Day, how his sheep are in his hands, protected. And I think it's just beautiful. Verse 6. The psalmist says that God's goodness and his has said will follow, will pursue him, will chase him all the days of his life. Has it not been true for you, brothers and sisters? God's has said pursuing us, his steadfast love pursuing us, chasing us, not letting us go. So Psalm 23 encapsulates the story of the Bible. The good shepherd has a chosen flock that belongs to him. And this flock will be preserved and will persevere through trials and afflictions until they arrive at the mountain of the Lord where they dwell with the good shepherd, enjoying his covenantal relationship and enjoying his smiling face forever. As we move to the New Testament, that's the Old Testament. And you see clearly demonstrated verified this doctrine in the Old Testament. And as we move to the New Testament, becomes even brighter, this doctrine. As we walk through Paul's letters, we know that Paul was very, very aware that apart from God, he was nothing. Paul was very aware that salvation from beginning to end was the work of God himself. Paul knew that he who had begun a good work would finish the work. So in 1 Corinthians, he tells us, chapter 1, he says that the Lord will sustain you to the end. That's beautiful. The Lord will sustain you to the end. Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you are called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ. This is assurance. God will keep you. He will preserve you to the end. But wait a second. Does that mean that we can just live however? Just read the letter. How many imperatives for us to live a holy life. Even though God will preserve us. He will preserve us through the means of sanctification. If you are in 1 Corinthians. I, I invite you to turn to verses, uh, chapter 11. There is also a very fascinating text there. 1 Corinthians 11. Verses 18 through 19. He says, and that's something that sometimes we forget. He says, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are more divisions among you. And I believe in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are true. Those who are true among you may be recognized. So there are times that God used divisions in a church to reveal those who truly belong to Him and persevere in holding to the true and sound doctrine. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. God preserves, we persevere, and it's all His work. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Starting verse 7, Paul says, But we have this treasure, the treasure of the gospel of Jesus Christ, in jars of clay, to show the surpassing power 
that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. That's perseverance and preservation together. Always carrying the body, the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. And then in verse 14, look how he says, Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Not maybe, not hopefully, he will. He will accomplish the work. And if you're still there, you can look at verses 17, chapter 4, until chapter 5, verse 5. And now Paul is talking how the suffering that we go through is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison. And the Lord used suffering, brothers and sisters, the Lord uses suffering as the means for perseverance. Why do I suffer? It's God's means. For you to persevere. Why? Paul explains in Romans chapter 5. Because the tribulations and the suffering. Will produce the endurance. And why? Because we have a hope. We keep looking to Jesus. In Ephesians. Turn with me to Ephesians. Marvelous opening. Ephesians chapter 1. All those doctrines of election, predestination, redemption, union with Christ, it's all there, right in the beginning. And sometimes I hear preachers saying that we should not be bringing this thing to the public. So there are some faithful preachers and churches, but they're embarrassed of these doctrines, as we should hide these doctrines. Paul is not hiding anything. It's right in the opening of Ephesians. Paul says in verse 13 through 14, In Christ you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. The Holy Spirit is described as a seal and a deposit by Paul. And God is the one who has the power and authority to seal something. In ancient times, you'd seal a precious possession that you had. So maybe you had something very precious, you'd put your imprint that belongs to moi. Slaves also would be sealed, marked. So the seal, there were would be a symbol of security. You belong to someone. And also to identify. So Paul is saying that God is to be blessed. Because he seals believers with his Holy Spirit. Claiming them as his own. And securing their final inheritance. Paul also says that the Spirit is the guarantee. That's the ESV. Or if you have the NIV. has who is a deposit. That's a good word, deposit. It's a down payment. Arnold says the message that Paul is communicating here is that God so, so values his people. He treasures his people so much that he has, put a down, he has put down a deposit and will complete the transaction in the future. 
Can you imagine that? Next time you're down your salvation. Next time you're down your salvation and you know you have been walking holiness. And Satan comes trying to bring you to despair. Remember this verse. God has put a, has put a down payment, a deposit. He is mine. He is mine. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26 to 27. Look at the purpose of Christ's death. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her. And here the, the sub subjunctive mood is a subjunctive of intention, not possibility. We could translate that he gave himself for her the, to sanctify her. Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he will present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus guarantees the sanctification and the glorification of his people. Amen? Jesus guarantees the sanctification and the glorification of his people. Clinton Arnold, he says, Paul stresses that on that day the church will be glorious. This word highlights the beauty and the splendidness of the church in her moral purity. Because of the blood of Christ and the ongoing sanctifying work of the risen Christ, believers will appear before their Lord as completely holy and pure. That's the doctrine of the preservation and perseverance of the saints. Last one, and we finish here. Last one, Romans chapter 8. Please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. And there is probably no better text to verify this doctrine as Romans chapter 8. Starting in verse 28, we have the marvelous, marvelous statement. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among, among many brothers. And look at that. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also... Uh, Justifying those who he justified, he glorified. And this chain is unbreakable. There is no way to break this chain. Those foreknown, predestined, called, justified, glorified. And notice that Paul used the perfect tense. It's past, it's done. But wait a second. Glorified in Christ Jesus the glorification is certain. That's certain. And look at verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? All things for what? A new boat, a new car, more money. All things related to the glorification, the salvation of His people. He has given all that we need for that salvation. And He shows us by saying, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? 
It's God who justifies. So this is one of the things that God has given us for our salvation is our justification. And God is not going back and say, justify today. Oh no, you're not justified anymore. Condemn. God's not arbitrary like that. Those who are justified, they are justified in Christ and they are in Christ justified forever. And then he gives another gift that we have, the intercession of Jesus. Who is to condemn us? Christ Jesus, the one who died more than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed right now doing what? Interceding for us. That's why he just bursts out this explosion of praise. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who will separate us? We have been justified, and we have Jesus now interceding for us. It's impossible for God to condemn those whom He justified, and then to ignore the intercession of Jesus. Thomas Reiner, beautifully, he writes, Condemning, condemning those justified would be a renunciation of the atoning work of Christ on the cross. God has clearly accepted Christ's death on our behalf because Jesus Christ is risen from the dead and seated at the God's right hand. Not only has Christ been raised and seated at God's right hand, but he's, He also intercedes for believers. The intercession of Christ is based on His death, and for God to refuse such intercession is unthinkable. If He rejected Christ's intercession, He would mock the death of His own Son. And Christ is interceding for us as the perfect high priest. Then look how he says, he continues. And now he brings a list of things that could separate us from the love of God, right? So he has a whole list here of things that, humanly speaking, would be the things that would cause us to deny the faith. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Yeah, every, all the things that would cause someone to say, no, I'm not a Christian anymore. Too much pain, too much suffering. He brings all these things. And then he says, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We are more than conquerors, not because we are so cool and good but because of His love towards us. He keeps loving us. He keeps loving us and not letting us go. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things, nor present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to do a separate us from the love of God. Look at union with Christ. In Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul contemplates the worst things that can happen in life. Such as starvation and martyrdom. Because it is, are precisely the circumstances that could propel one to commit apostasy. Paul stares apostasy in the face by considering what could cause believers to forsake Christ, and he argues that they will not do so because the love of God and Christ will not let them go. Will not let them go. Nothing the created order can sever believers, can separate believers from God's love. Their assurance is strong and steadfast, resting on God's unalterable, unalterable and irrevocable what? promises. 
That's the doctrine of assurance, perseverance, preservation. We go through, we persevere in all these trials. And in all these trials, as we are going through, we are more than conquerors. Why? Because of the love of God. who will not let us go. That's why we joyfully sing. No power of hell. No power of hell. No scheme of man. Can ever what? Pluck me from his hand. Till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, where I stand. Brothers and sisters, that's the doctrine that empowers us to go to bed at night and not think if I'm going to wake up the next morning lost. Am I going to wake up? I never go to bed thinking, am I going to wake up as an unbeliever tomorrow? No. I'm in Christ. I have, an, I have Him as my perfect mediator. The Holy Spirit working me. There are evidences of His work in me. And He's always preserving His people. So the Lord alone has the power to preserve and empower us to persevere. We read that God has given us all things to achieve that final glorification. And some of the things that God gives us to achieve that glorification, He gives us a package, and this package has suffering, tribulations, his word with warnings and promises. The church. Amen. Those are the means that God provides for us to persevere into the end. And one of the glorious means that the Lord has given us to keep us persevering is the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is one of those means that God has given to the church to remind us to remind us that we belong to the Lord, that we have a place at His table, and that He will keep feeding us. He will keep strengthening us. He will keep empowering us to keep marching, running, fighting until the end. So, may the Lord help us. And as we prepare ourselves to partake of the Lord's Supper, I pray that the Lord would truly, truly help us to understand the beauty and the glory of the salvation that we have in Him. And as we partake together, that we would indeed be strengthened to endure and persevere under trial. So, Father, we, we come before You. We look at so many different texts from Your Word We want to stop, Lord. We want to ask you, please help us. Speak to us. Lord, we pray your blessing upon this time as we prepare ourselves to partake of the Lord's table. Help us to come to your table with reverence, awe, fear, joy, gratitude, thanksgiving, love. Oh, Lord, how majestic is your name. How majestic is your work of salvation. And we are secure, we are, we are safe in your hands, Lord. For those here who do not know you, today is the day of salvation, Lord. Not tomorrow, today is the day of salvation. Help those who do not know you to see you. Come to your arms. Receive this precious salvation. Lord, those who have been 
playing with sin, those who have been messing around with sin, those who have been entertaining sin and claim to be Christians, Lord. Shake them up. This lifestyle does not lead to heaven, but to hell. And those who remain in sin will just show themselves to never, never have been truly born from above. So I pray that your Holy Spirit be drawing, humiliating, bringing all of us to the cross of Christ. Pray your blessing as we prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper, the time of singing, partaking, praying. Help us, O Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Amen.